future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Friday, June 17th, 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop podcast. It's our Friday politics roundup. It's our Out to Coop live, my uh, whatever. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week I break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash Press to become a patron today. You can also help out the show right now by heading over to our YouTube channel. If you're not there already, smash that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. Yes, we are still sitting at 206 subscribers, everybody. We are over the 200 mark, which I've been wanting to hit for a while now. Uh, let's keep that train a-rolling. Um, and listen, if you listen to this as a podcast and you're not watching the live stream, you're not watching the video, listen to this as a podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you kind of give us that five-star rating, leave a review for the show. It helps other people find the show. That would be absolutely fantastic. Thank you, thank you. And look, if you're looking for uh, some other uh, PA-based... Oh, my God, look, my stuff is all over the place. Uh, well, who are we going for? Anyways, anyways, anyways sorry. <laughs> I thought I had it together this morning. Apparently, I do not. Anyways, uh, listen, also want to remind you, don't let Paul Martino and his friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, support local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmask the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money, and you can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. More information as the summer on that summer goes on about where we're going to be uh, sinking that money. Uh, good morning, Amy. Good morning. Amy's joining us on the stream. Uh, fantastic. So on today's show, January 6th hearings are doing an exceptional job making it abundantly clear that Trump and those close to him were consciously planning a coup. And yet hearings also seem to have a side project of rehabilitating the Republican Party. Yep, maybe Nancy Pelosi will get her wish of an even stronger GOP after all. Crazy. The AFL-CIO has its conference, uh, this big kind of convention going on, right? Uh, I think it's just starting or something, getting growing, something like this. And uh, yes, uh, they announce a big new goal. Big new goals organizing a million new workers over the next 10 years. However, as Hamilton Nolan explains in In These Times, that's a nice soundbite, but it sets the stage for further decline in union density. It's one of these kind of things. We're going to try to kind of sound good without really grappling with the crisis. Now, on the other end of the labor spectrum, however, this weekend, today, actually, the Labor Notes Conference gets underway in Chicago. Labor Notes Conference, of course, is the biggest gathering out there of grassroots union activists, worker-centered leaders, and all-around troublemakers. They are fantastic people. They've always felt like that's kind of my home in the labor movement. Uh, they are meeting this weekend, and it is an amazing, amazing agenda. I swear to God, I wish I could have been there this year. But uh, this is, uh, I mean, this is like, I've got their, 
your agenda this year, and it's just like, uh, man, it's just like incredible. Like, like for example, just today, this is how they're starting off the day today. Uh, collective responses to divisions in workplace and beyond, anti-racism trainings in our unions, lessons and challenges, austerity debt and the fight for education funding, bargaining committee crash course, bringing the fight to Medicare for all into your workplace, Chinese workers under the pandemic, feel it in your bones, embodiment for all, how to be an educator in your union, how to march on the boss. I mean, these are the people that you got to be around. So um, look for some big stuff coming out of Labor Notes Conference this year. Um, they had to shut down registration because it was overflowing with people wanting to head out to this. Um, the central place is going to be given to the explosion of what we saw in the uh, Amazon Labor Union, what we're seeing at the Starbucks organizing um, that has really re-energized that kind of grassroots workplace rank-and-file organizing happening in unions, and they are showing up at the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago today through Sunday. I'm so psyched um, that's going on. Uh, I regret not being able to be there. Another one, another news, a uh, recent stock market nosedive has wiped out more than $3 trillion in retirement savings this year. Yep, just one more example of the consequences of leaving retirement up to a glorified casino. The house always wins. I remember that big bipartisan deal on new federal gun reform? Yes. Look, finally, we broke through. We found the reasonable Republicans. Yeah, well, that the big GOP partner on the talks, John Cornyn from Texas, just walked away from negotiations before any potential deal and put any potential deal into question. Right? Their self-imposed deadline was kind of like blown through because, you know, senators got to go on vacation. Vacation definitely comes first. So uh, you remember, that's what I said last week. I said, don't count on it. Don't count on it. They're saying they're optimistic, but don't count on it because they had not agreed to a word of text. It was just a framework. And, of course, the devil's in the details, and that's where they're hitting the roadblocks once again. A little closer to Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, the Wolf administration is still trying to get $2,000 checks out to Pennsylvanians. Yes, but the state Republicans don't want you to have them. So good luck with that. (laughs) State Senator Steve Santiero becomes uh, Santisero, I'm sorry, uh, becomes the new chair of the Bucks County Democrats. Can his leadership help right the ship? Open question. We shall see. There's a lot of people getting excited, though. Um, there's a lot of people excited about this. I'm pretty kind of looking forward to the change as well. Now, PA legislator, of course, punted bills on re- gun reform this week, and Governor Wolf called the move shameful, and it is. Pashi Chancellor Greenstein announced a new funding scheme for the remaining universities, but no one really seems to understand what the consequences will be, or even what exactly he's saying. <laughs> Par for the course, I guess. Yes, in today's last call in Space News, yes, uh, SpaceX employees draft a letter criticizing Elon Musk and his leadership and his increasingly erratic kind of nut job um, kind of uh, uh, behavior, and Musk goes ahead and fires at least five of them suspected of writing that letter. Surprise, surprise. NASA's Perseverance Mars rover spots trash on the red planet, reminding us all that wherever we go, we trash it up. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I also, I didn't put it in here, too, as well. I should have put it in here, too, as well, is that, you know, uh, there's a new report out about climate change, and they're saying that uh, uh, good, good, very large stretches of uh, England, uh, what, let me see if I can grab it real quick. They're saying that uh, about 200,000 um, 200, properties in England are going to be kind of uh, are at danger of kind of collapsing into the sea, you know, um, by the mid of the century. So that's kind of cool. Crazy. And anyway, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern, a YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook. 
Subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And check out all his venues, every place he's at. Check him out at Free Speech TV. Go to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And it's official. Sisters the Night Caucus podcast is flooding your streams, and you should be kind of welcoming those streams into your streams. You can find it on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind the podcast Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. For all you gamers out there, check out The Game In. That's with two N's. The Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything from retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, loads of collectibles, action figures, and Funko Pops. Whoo, yes. And, uh, you know, it is summertime. So uh, if your kids are sitting there looking for something to do and they're kind of gamers uh, and you're a little reluctant about kind of dropping a ton of cash... You know, on a big game thing, head on over to the game in. They've got things right across the board. It's like a really awesome place. Uh, if you've got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And follow them on Twitter at, at thegameinpa. Special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's at Song of Day Man on Twitter. And look, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media, folks. Support Pull No Punches, homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, welcome, 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 everybody who's kind of joined us here. Uh, welcome, Kirsten, uh, to the show. Uh, yeah, she says uh, regarding Steve Santisiero, yes, it can be indeed. Bucks Dems are now promoting a plan for municipal Dems to perform issue-based canvassing instead of just candidate promo and lit drops. It's also key to have local Dems reach out to folks who are uh, who we know are allies but who are infrequent voters. Uh, instead of just telling them who to vote for, we must give these folks reason to vote. And Newtown Dems did it last weekend on gun violence prevention and future canvassing of the weeks will center on reproductive freedom. That's freaking great, great news. Um, just a kind of quick note on that, too, as well. Um, you can sense that there is I don't want to get too optimistic here. I don't want to get out kind of, you know, over my skis kind of thing and kind of uh, be a little bit too bullish on things. But uh, the fact is that um, this week I had uh, for the first time. In memory, I had canvassers basically show up uh, at my house, and uh, they were canvassers for uh, Gwen Stoltz, who is running in the 143rd, um, and, uh, you know, they were out there, and they were local. They weren't these kind of outside paid folks. These were people that were kind of learning canvassing as we go. I got to chat with them a little bit. I'm told they were huge supporters of her, and uh, then... Right. Um, they kept on going. They went house to house. Right. Watched them kind of go up. I was doing yard work. So I saw that they were there for quite some time. And then the next day, there was another group of canvassers also out there for Gwen Stoltz. Right. Who made their way. So that is the I'm telling you, this has been the thing in the in the entire time up until this year, the entire time that it, that um, that I have lived in um, Percocy. Right. In Bucks County. That's since like, what, 2000, 2008. Right. Before this week, only twice did Democrats ever show up on my street that I saw them or at least show up on my door. 
only twice. Republicans were always out. Democrats, no. And the last time, it was the last election. We had two candidates um, for um, kind of municipal election um, kind of were out. And the previous time before that, I, 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 I frankly, it was probably the second year that I was here and it was someone was running for a judge or if I remember correctly, it was a woman running for a judge. But that was it. And so to see that kind of attention being paid to the kind of local elections and seeing people out there already canvassing for candidates um, is pretty impressive. Now, what Kirsten just said is that actually to have um, people out there talking about issues and canvassing over issues and not just candidates, that's that kind of deep organizing that we've kind of alluded to before, that deep canvassing, I should say, where, you know, canvassing is not just about um, being out there knocking on doors and talking to people um, around election time, but it is uh, something that is ongoing and consistent in the community, right? And there's a bunch of ways. Yes, there's the door knocking, but there's also kind of local events. There's also things to um, kind of continue the focus and the discussion upon what we can do that's pretty um, pretty awesome, right? Um, yes, and Kirsten says, uh, yes, it is awesome. Uh, we know that the history of midterms run against the party in power, and if we want to change and if we want to prevent um, that from happening in 2022, we must change our strategy. This is a big change. Let's hope so. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I'll have to admit um, I'm a little uh, – I get a little hesitant um, to get too excited too quickly um, when it comes to changes that are happening in the Democratic Party, and that just comes from um, the history. Right, that becomes from the history of the practices. Um, the Democrats tend to be very good about um, uh, kind of making splashes and headlines and do media work, um, but the it's going to take some time to really turn the Democratic Party into making it a a, a really a, a political organization. Because um, right now it's a you know it, it's a, a political organization at the top level, um, but it hasn't really invested in the roots. Um, that does seem to be the direction that is going on in Bucks County. I really hope so, unless we're actually willing to do the work of, um, unless, you know, we have enough people willing to do the work of running for school board and doing that kind of canvassing and, um, you know, and doing some of the grunt work too as well, then it's going to, it's going to remain at this, you know, this bifurcated way of doing politics. But um, there's all these signs pointing in really, really positive directions. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what's happening um, at some of the national news um, at the uh, happening at the national news. The, the January 6th hearings, uh, I, I have to say, they I've been pleasantly surprised with what's what's happening at, with those hearings. Now, um, and what I mean by pleasantly surprised, I think they are doing an exceptional job of really making a case of what's happening and not just repeating talking points that we saw from the past, but actually presenting a coherent narrative and providing um, pretty impressive testimony um, in support of any claim that they're making. Right. And that's what they said that they were doing. But again, I wasn't trusting that. And they seem to be doing a pretty good job of that. Um, I mean, if you we look at one of the things we saw right from the get-go is we're not just seeing repeats of things that were available in the public reporting, but we also saw, say, new perspectives where we saw new testimony and there's new things being introduced. For example, on the first day, we had the testimony of um, a Capitol Hill police officer. Um, she was um, kind of knocked unconscious um, during the first attack on the, on the Capitol. Um, we saw footage that we hadn't seen before. It was all time-stamped. We got to see another 
kind of moment by moment um, progression of what goes on. We found out on that first day that um, the Proud Boys, right, and um, uh, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers had been organizing ahead of time, right? They had been planning ahead of time. They knew what they were doing, and they knew that they needed the mob. Um, they didn't just find themselves someplace. As a matter of fact, they left Trump's speech um, on the ellipse um, before he actually started speaking um, to get down and kind of secure some places of opening to find weak spots in the defenses to make sure that people could get in. Um, they could uh, force the way in. So they had they had pre-staged and prepared for um, the mob, and then they utilized the mob as uh, cover, basically to get in, and it helped incite the mob um, to carry out violence. They had a clear plan, and that was documented pretty well on 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 day one. Now on day two, right, that was this past Monday. Um, what we got to see there is that we got to see there well. Um, that Trump knew that what he was proposing had no merit, that he was told that um, there was no there there, to use the phrase that has come out of there. Um, Bill Barr claims that he basically told the president that uh, President Trump at the time that the claims of election fraud were bullshit. Um and person after person from people that were very, very close to Trump um, or who were political insiders on the right. Again, these are no friends. None of these people who are being brought forward to testify, almost none of them are Democrats. The vast majority of them are Republicans and in many cases, right wing Republicans. Um, and they are coming out and telling what they saw and assuming what they're saying is truthful. Um, it's pretty damning. And the finger points directly at Trump in ways that um, more so than at any other kind of reporting that's out there. There's always been that kind of like next step of connections to what degree was Trump do this and the Proud Boys made use of it. Instead of that, we saw a much more coordinated plan. And what we just saw yesterday, uh, was that yesterday? Two days ago, Tuesday. No, Thursday. Yeah, yesterday was uh, the kind of the Mike Pence version of that. And really how close we were to having a significant uh, to have a successful coup. Um, uh, what the committee has shown pretty impressively has been like it really did come down to Mike Pence. And it really came down to one person. Right. They found that weak link. They said if they could just turn Pence, then the rest of their plan was going. They had all of it down there. They had cleared away all the chaff, all the other maneuvering and said, there's this one guy. And we got to go after that one guy and put all the pressure on it to the point where he was getting physical threats. Right. In addition to all sorts of other kind of like public threats from Trump and kind of his close cronies um, that we saw that the uh, uh Secret Service uh, was warning um, uh, Mike Pence's people that he uh, – warning them that Trump is most likely going to incite people against him. Uh, we saw footage of how close the mob was actually to Pence, um, like literally 40 feet away. Um, had they made a different turn and broken down a different door, we might be having a very different situation. Right? Um, and, you know, we saw 
I, you know, we look, we got to, we got to, I would recognize and give credit to the fact that Pence, Mike Pence, you know, he called a right wing lawyer and said, Hey, look, what is this going on? You know, I need, I need help with it. And the guy said, that's freaking crazy. That's unconstitutional, illegal. That's a crime. You can't do that. You have no power to do that. You have no this. And, and Pence held fast to that, refused to leave the Capitol to get out of there because he was worried about where they were going to take him and followed what he did. And, Look, did that take courage on his part? Sure. Did that take, uh, you know, political guts? Yes. Did he do the right thing? Yes. Um, all that is true, right? Um, and we can imagine had, you know, had someone just given him a different kind of advice, tell him that there was a gray area, tell him that, well, it's really up to interpretation. We let the courts decide. That's there. We also saw the role of John Eastman, right? Trump's lawyer, who is basically was very conscious that there was going to be violence and he knew that there would be violence and he was okay with that. They were okay with utilizing violence as a way to accomplish the ends of keeping Trump in office. All right. This is pretty remarkable. I mean, historically speaking, what this commission is putting forward is, is it's terrifying. Well, I'll say terrible. It's terrifying. It's, it's, it's incredibly weighty, and it shows you how tenuous the system that we have was at that point. Chris Hayes said last, you know, they're doing a, like a, a breakdown or kind of a review of what actually happened, and he said it right. He's like, "Look, if Mike Pence had just made a different choice, all bets are off. What do you do then? There is no, there's no place to go at that point." It's just just like what was happening all throughout Trump's presidency, right? It's like he'd push and he'd push and he'd push and he'd break the rules and he'd violate norms and then he'd do things that actually probably were illegal and probably were kind of like, you know, <laughs> against the Constitution. But there was nobody there willing to step in or able to step in with the authority to step in to stop him. So he just kept on rolling. You can't have a conflict of interest. You can't own a hotel and entertain guests. You're the the the, the emolulence. What is it? The the uh, I can't even think of the word now. Emolulence, emolulence, like cloud. You know, you can't basically take gate like money from foreign uh, foreign you know uh, governments or people and blah blah blah. And he just had him stay at the hotel and he personally profited off her. What did they do? Nothing. I shouldn't say nothing. Yes, he was impeached twice. Right. But wasn't convicted. And Trump knew he wasn't going to be convicted. So then what? Objectively, he violated that. Objectively, he broke the law. Objectively, he did all this stuff. And what? Where's the consequence? Not there. So, okay, great. We stand on a moral soapbox, but that's, you know, that's pretty freaking frightening. And so the same thing was here. If Pence did that. If Pence actually sided with Trump as opposed to making a decision that he was required to make, who would have stopped them? And even I'm just forgetting the guy's name right now, but what, you know, what, the one guy who was tested was basically it would have been it would have been settled in the streets, right? There would have been violence in the streets. And it would have been, that was the matter. And 
Eastman knew, as was testified yesterday, knew that if the Supreme Court ever heard their case, they would they would lose. Trump people would lose. But Eastman said he was confident the Supreme Court would not hear the case. That they would say this is a political matter, so we stay out of it. And he was banking on the Supreme Court being unwilling to hear the case, which would effectively let their coup stand. I mean, literally, this is exactly the kind of thing that we've seen in coups around the world. This is precisely the pattern it took, and it was that close here. And I have to say that January 6th commission is doing an exceptional job in bringing home the gravity of that situation. Hats off to them. Now, there's there's a problem, however. And the problem is that the problem is that the effect, one of the effects of bringing forward the people that they're bringing forward to testify and to constantly point the fingers at a very small group of people within Trump world is a little side project, whether it's intentional or not, is the rehabilitation of team normal of the Republicans. Now, let's be clear. Bill Barr was practically held up in some on many kind of uh, media outlets as a hero because he was telling Trump what it is. But let's remember, Bill Barr, he resigned at the last minute before the coup attempt. He was carrying out Trump's orders and going on like going on national media, talking about how the election has been stolen and so on. All these people that are testifying were make they didn't say a bit. They didn't say a word about any of this when they could have prevented the coup attempt. They knew. They knew what Trump was planning. They did what Trump told them to do. Yes, they might have told them, maybe they might have offered a, you know, a criticism or um, raised questions about what he was doing or told them that it wasn't, that he couldn't do it. But they didn't tell anybody about it. And therefore allowed it to move forward because they were worried about their, worried about their own skins and that's it. But now... They're being brought forward, and objectively speaking, right, these are the ones, these are the profiles and courage as far as the TV screen is concerned. These are the people who are coming forward and are the truth tellers. And one of the most effective leaders of this commission is who? Lynn Cheney. A right-wing conservative Republican. So we're not seeing the Republican Party being held accountable here. What we're doing is that we're, again, focusing on Trump world. 
even some of these people that have testified have come out and basically say, talked about how anti-progressive and they think that the Democrats would kind of, you know, are, are the worst things out there and that they're trying to turn us into socialism and so on. Bill Barr, even after all this stuff goes on, still said he would vote for Trump if he was a Republican nominee. These are not good people. What they, the, what they should be credited for is telling the truth when compelled by the law to do so. So in other words, as far as we can tell, they're not lying under oath. That's their courage. If they commit to saying that they're going to testify and they testify in what the committee deems is to be truthful ways, that is the baseline of our law. Right? So they didn't perjure themselves. And they didn't take the Fifth Amendment, which would then basically open themselves up for civil suits, right? Because it can be assumed that there's a degree of guilt there in a civil case. So they abided by the letter of the law. That's what they're doing here. And by, by just coming forward and telling the truth after being compelled under subpoena, in many cases, having to decide whether or not they're willing to go to jail for this guy, then they came forward and they told their piece of it. They told what they recollected. The commission is the one who's putting together this narrative and they uncovered these things. They're the ones who compelled them. They're the ones who are exposing this, along with all these other journalists who have been reporting on this for a while. And yet, I've got the sneaking suspicion that we're going to see this. Let me just give you a little piece. So here's a, this is uh, Thomas Zimmer from The, the Guardian. Um, he writes like this. Uh, I'll read a little bit of it just so you can kind of get the tenor of this here. So the January 6th hearings have been more impressive and more forceful than anyone could have ex- reasonably expected. I agree. Definitely worthy of the nation's continued primetime attention. Yet so far, the hearings have been narrowly focused on Donald Trump and the past, rather than continuing assault on a democratic system that the Republican Party has fully embraced. The committee's core task is to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and what led to it, of course. But everyone who believes in democracy needs to recognize that, in a very concrete sense, there is a continued, continuing insurrection that far surpasses Trump. The committee's strategy of building its case most entirely, almost entirely on the testimony from Trump people, Republicans and conservatives, not Democrats, is certainly effective if the goal is to prove the nonpartisan nature of the proceedings. But it runs the risk of letting too many people besides Trump off the hook. The narrative is that there was a team normal in and around the White House that moved away from Trump as he went increasingly off the rails, isolating him and leaving him with only team crazy and the likes of an allegedly drunk Rui Giuliani, a rather unhinged Cindy, uh, Sidney Powell, and a right-wing lawyer, John Eastman, who seemed, who seemed entirely willing to invent pseudo-legal reasons to justify a coup attempt. Right? And that's pretty, that's pretty on the nose there. Right. I mean, that's where we're leading to. Right. So then you've got the Proud Boys, you've got these right wing kind of extremist uh, factions that are kind of 
are doing groundwork. You've got a mob that could have broken and smashed the Capitol. And essentially, you've got a insider group of what now? Three? Four? Powell, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Trump, and John Eastman. There's more than that, of course, but, you know, those are the four that are taking the spotlight. Right. So does that mean that we walk away from this with a, a story of what happened as being the story of those four? The story of Team Normal being isolated and Team Crazy, those four taking over. That gets to be a little bit hard to swallow, especially since right now, as that Thomas Thomas Zimmer goes on to, to, to point to, is that the same processes are still moving, right? The stripping away of voting rights, right? The kind of the Trumpistas taking over secretaries of state, right? Um, in states around the country, the continued attempts to um, disenfranchise people for, um, to vote, the kind of, you know, the looking the other way of, you know, uh, when it comes to the, the, um, the uh, these kind of right-wing militants and extremists, right? The taking over, the, the, the QAnon people and the other extremists taking over school boards, right? I mean, this is, this is ongoing leading into 2022. So, and, and again, I want to be, I, I kind of, I kind of think that we need, to, it's like the walk and chew gum thing at this point, right? We need to be able to look at what they're doing in the January 6th hearings and say, kudos to you. This is a, you're doing a freaking fantastic job. And then I think this is one of the reasons I'm doing this here today. So I want to constantly be coming back to you. So I'm, we cannot reinscribe the narrative that Nancy Pelosi wants us to reinscribe. You know, the idea that we need a strong Republican party. As I've said on the show before, we already have a strong Republican Party. They're not the strong Republicans that she wants, which I don't know why she wants a strong Republican Party. I thought she was a Democrat and a weak uh, Republican Party is actually good for the Democrats because the Democrats could, could then govern, right? Why you'd want to wish for a strong Republican Party is so far beyond me. I can't even It's political malpractice, as Sam Cedar has said. I, I 100% agree with that. But why do the work? Why should people like us do the work of helping rehabilitate these people? When they are part, as as Thomas Zimmer says in The Guardian, part of an ongoing coup. I don't think we should. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see where it goes next. I know that there were supposed to be a, a, another hearing on Wednesday that got booted, um, that got kind of moved. Um, we're, uh, you know, let me just check on this real quick because I've been waiting for this. Um, there was uh, what we thought was going to happen on Wednesday. Uh, one of the one of the conjectures was that there was going to be uh, the major announcements about the the turning back of Roe v. Wade on Wednesday, and that was why the hearing was canceled or postponed or moved. Um, but then nothing came down. Um, but as we're learning right now, the um, Supreme Court is now being um, encircled by uh, anti-riot fences. 
Um, uh, it ha- has been. It's been off limits to the public since March 2022. The, the U.S. Supreme Court is poised in the coming weeks, this is from Reuters, um, to issue a major ruling that could dramatically curtail abortion rights from behind closed doors without uh, a single justice in sight. No members of the public have been allowed in the courthouse since the uh, the pandemic and so on. It goes on. So you've got this big wall that's up there. We're still expecting um, there to be um, unrest, let's say, uh, after those announcements, but they're not here yet. Um, but that didn't come down on Wednesday. And so the, we're still waiting for the other hearing that's going to look focus more squarely on what was going on inside the Justice Department. Um, but, you know, that's where we're at. Um, the other thing is going on. This is the the AFL-CIO um, had its or is having its. I think it's I mean, I want to say it's going on kind of right now. Um, but let me see. Let me just get this. Ba-ba-ba-ba. Well, it's it's coming. I think it's I think it's maybe coming up or whatever. But you know, they're saying that there was um, there's this piece, there's this announcement that came out, right? That said that uh, the FLCL set a goal of organizing a million new workers in the next ten years, um, but that it doesn't amount to kind of like all that much when you kind of consider. Let me kind of take you into this piece just a little bit. So at Hamilton Nolan, he makes this face. Let me just, again, I'll read a little bit of it. He's allowed me to be specific. Liz Schuler, the newly elected president of the AFL-CIO, announced from the convention stage the formation of the Center for Transformational Organizing with the stated goal of organizing at least a million new workers, um, new working people in the next 10 years. Quote, we will develop, implement, and scale powerful campaigns for unprecedented union growth, unquote, Schuler said. This was presented as a bold new statement that the AFL-CIO is, at last, putting organizing on the front burner. The convention's motto, after all, is, quote, building the movement to meet the moment, unquote. A million new members. Kind of sounds like a lot, right? Well, my friends, let's do a little quick math. One decade ago, in 2011, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that there were uh, 14.8 million union members in America for a union density of 11.8%. In 2021, 10 years later, the most recent year on record, there were 14 million union members for a density of 10.3. So in raw numbers, 800,000 union members were lost in the past decade. So adding a cool million in the next decade seems pretty good, right? No. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, America will add 12 million jobs during the 2020s decade, with the total employment rising to uh, 165.4 million by the year 2030. One million is only 8% of those. So if we were very conservatively estimate, there will be, if we very conservatively estimate, there will be 166 million total workers by 2032. If we add 1 million new union members, there will be 15 million union members a decade from now for a union density of less than 10%, which is to say the AFL-CIO's highly touted organizing plan would represent a continued decline of unions for the next decade and an acceptance of single-digit union density, which is the last stop before true irrelevance. Rather than, quote, unprecedented union growth, unquote, as advertised, this would represent an extremely well-precedented degrowth. And he goes on to say, if Schuler truly wants to be more ambitious, this would be a good time to throw some intransigent, lazy union leaders under the bus. Quote, we would love to have put forward a bigger number, but unions X, Y, and Z were unwilling to do so, unquote. Well, then activists inside the individual unions could deal with the problem. 
But without that sort of transparency, though, all we have is shared blame. And ultimately, it all means nothing to working people who are left without unions. That he does say, look, I want to be fair to the FLCAO. It is good that they are trying at long last to feature new organizing as a high profile priority. And it is good that they are trying to set a goal. I believe that they they believe that that is important in a too philosophical sense. Randy Weidgarten, for example, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, the FLCIO's largest union, took this view in another press gaggle last night. She said, quote, it's important to put a number out there, she said. Is it too low? Of course it's too low. Her point was the decline of unions has been more than a half century in the making, and any reversal of that would take a long time. And the mere act of having a goal that all, um, that all of these dozens of disparate unions would agree to is a worthy first step. The problem is the goal sucks. It's like a lethargic person finally joining a gym, joining a gym and setting themselves the goal of bench pressing one pound. Yes, it is achievable, but it won't do them much good. All right. And it goes on. So good, right? Um, but we need to be clear, right? Uh, once again. And now, again, Schuler goes on in this to talk, you know, she, she does talk a little bit about, about how, look, we're not just talking about AFL-CAO affiliated unions. We just want to kind of set this bar out there. Um, and the question really is, is that is the AFL-CIO um, going to continue to set itself up for kind of, you know, irrelevance, is, you know, if you're not going to have a union, you know, a, a union, uh, like a union leadership body that is going to set, like, you know, the horizon as something that's, you know, we can achieve, you know, it's like setting, it's like, well, what is it that we can do? It's the same, same garbage that they did on this gun reform stuff, right? They said, well, let's start from what we think is possible. And then we'll argue about the specifics of, of those things that are possible. And then you end up with kind of like a crumb of something. Right. As opposed to set a goal, a goal is something that you need to work at to achieve. Right. Not something that's already there that you just need to put it together. Hey, Emily. So that's that kind of idea. Right. So, you know, they, you set a goal. Great. But. Come on. At some point, we've got to recognize that we need a more militant labor union, labor movement. And just kind of settling for kind of like these like tiny step forwards just doesn't get us there. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the show, what happened here in the PA AFL-CIO, where Frank Snyder was, uh, you know, he was the incoming president. He was forced to resign after a whole series of allegations about his mistreatment of women and other workers surfaced. Right. And here again, the PA AFL-CIO and the AFL-CIO, the National AFL-CIO, they had an opportunity to take a stand, to step forward and say, today's union movement is a union movement for all workers. As a matter of fact, the fastest growing parts of our union are women and people of color. We will not have racism in our, in our, our, you know, in our midst. We will not tolerate this kind of exploitation and abuse of women. We are going to stand up and we want to ensure we're going to clean house in the PAFL-CIO and we're going to put people in charge who understand what it means to build a militant labor union. That is taking a stand. Instead, they basically pushed Snyder out. They, he, res, he resigned. He said he's going to retire. He stepped aside. No report is going to be issued. And nobody's none the wiser. And meanwhile, the rot continues.
right? I mean, just like Nolan said, right? Like, you know, look, every organization has has uh, has its issues, right? And so there are people inside the AFL-CIO, um, particular member unions, who are not so happy with an organizing model. They want to keep things as they are. They like things as they are because, you know, that's how they built their own personal kind of status and wealth. So they don't want to rock the boat. They want to keep it as they are. Well, you got to call those people out. If you recognize this union movement, continue to doing what they're doing is not going to is not going to be effective. Right. There's a reason why Starbucks workers and there's a reason why that the the Amazon labor union. Right. Start started independently. Outside of the AFL-CIO framework, outside of the official union framework. Now, Workers United has been doing an amazing job with the, uh, with the Starbucks workers. There's other unions have been working with the Amazon Labor Union, right? But not in the traditional way, right? These are worker-led movements. And I can tell you from my own union, right? You know, again, we're gonna we're gonna this we're gonna be talking about this all year long because we're in a contract negotiation year, as I've said. Right, we've got a new union president, Ken Mash, who's kind of coming back in. At least, at least he's been there before, right? It's not tr- someone who's trying to figure things out as they're coming in. He's been there before. He's coming here. It's the same issue. Are we going to try the insider game and try to get the crumbs that we can get, or are we going to organize? And are, is the top, is the leadership going to set the tone for an organizing shift in our union? It's not just my. It's all unions. This is the, this is the question. Who in the union is going to be empowered? Is it going to be those people who like to play nice with the administration? Or is it going to be those who want to organize workers? Is the union going to tolerate one group of union members trashing another group of union members? And using the kind of academic political, you know, academic kind of like rumor mill for their own personal gain, probably, if things stay as they are. That happens in every organization. This is the time to take the stand. And so that's why, you know, this Labor Notes Conference, like I, I read a little bit about what they're, you know, what they have on their agenda. I mean, they've got it all. I mean, I'm telling you, if you are, you are not a subscriber to Labor Notes, you should be. I right, just go to labornotes.org, right? Um, right, labornotes.org. Super simple. If you want to, te- if you want to check out a little bit about uh, what's on their uh, their conference, you just go to labornotes.org/slash/2022. You can do this. You can take a look at their entire agenda. You can see what 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 this is all about. This is rank and file organizing, right? You can go the professional union route so that you too can be management just a different kind of manager or you can start from what the real problems are in the workplace you can start from gaining worker power you can have a broader understanding of what a union can do other than just secure minimal raises and benefits Right. And why is that important? Well, lots of reasons, as, as we've talked about before, you know, and, and this was just one of these things that you pair up with what's happening with that choice that unions have to make right now going forward. Are you going to go with more of the same, more business unionism, top down kind of stuff, or are you going to work bottom up and organizing? 
we saw the recent stock market like nosedive, right? And I, as I said at the top of the show, it wiped out more than three trillion dollars, three trillion dollars in retirement savings. So here, here, this is an article from uh, CBS News. U.S. stock market route that has put the U.S. equities in a bear market isn't just reducing the net worth of billionaires like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. It is also taking a toll on Americans' retirement savings, wiping out trillions of dollars in value. The sell-off has erased $3 trillion from U.S. retirement accounts, according to Alicia Munnell, uh, Munnell, director of the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. By her calculations, 401k plan participants have lost about $1.4 trillion from their accounts since the end of 2021. People with IRA, individual retirement accounts, most of which are 401k rollovers, have lost $2 trillion this year. This year's stock slump is the most severe market downturn since March 2020 when COVID-19 erupted in the U.S. Historically, 401k investments take about two years after a market decline of this size to regain their previous value. Retirement accounts are the main channel through which most Americans are exposed to the ups and downs of the stock market. Nearly three-quarters of all 401k money is held in stocks, according to a Vanguard report from 2021. And this year's has been mostly down. The S&P 500 has shrunk 22%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average has lost 13%. And the NASDAQ Composite has fallen more than 30%. Uh, For many low-income people, the growing popularity of so-called target date funds has also made retirement savings more risky. Left to their own devices, richer investors tend to choose riskier assets like stocks. However, due, to, uh, due in part to automated retirement tools, the lowest paid participants today are slightly more likely to have money in stocks, according to a Vanguard data she analyzed. Among workers with 401ks with annual incomes under $30,000 uh, $30, a year had 81% of the retirement fund in stocks. Got that? And then this is where it just gets disgusting. With the median 401k account having a balance of just $17,700 before the pandemic, this year's market decline would lop off more than $3,500 of that value. So bring it down to $14,200. A would-be retiree with a balance over $81,000, which would put them at 25% of savers, would see their nest egg shrink to just $64,800. So... What yes, there's the stock market stuff, right? And there's this decline and all this stuff. But let's be clear about what's going on. We don't have a pension system in this country very much anymore. And a lot of the reason for that has to do with the decline in union density. There was a time when you had higher union density, unions demanded pensions. Not stock market gambling, pensions, guaranteed retirement. You pay in, it builds interest, and you retire well. And it's done. And it's done. And when I came, just here's a perfect example is when I came to Kutztown, uh, I had to make a choice on day one. I always said, you're either going to go with this, it's called PCERS, right? You're going to go with the, the, say, the guaranteed pension, basically, or you can go to TIA CREF, which is basically, you know, it, there's some guaranteed income to it, but it's a, it's a uh, 
mostly you know stuff in stocks. If you wanted to kind of retire with anything decent, you have to have some of that stuff in stocks, at least earlier on in your career. Right. And I was told that you have to decide now and whatever you decide now, you can't change. Right. Well, as a, someone new to Kutztown, I didn't know the place yet. I didn't know if it was going to be a, a place that was going to be sustainable to work at uh, over the long term. Um, you know, frequently in, in uh, if you're working higher education as a professor, you get into a place and it's not uh, it's not unusual for people to move before they're before they get tenure, especially if they're if the job's not working out exactly as they would like or there's better offers that are on the table, whatever it might be. Right. So I was like, well, I already had a 401k from when I was an adjunct. Right. And when I was a graduate teaching assistant. Right. I had that because that was the only option I had. So I was like, well, at the very least, at least I can move that around. At least I can keep those funds. So I'm going to, I'm going to choose that. Right. And then, then they changed it. Of course, there was a window that opened say you can join that, but I, I wasn't eligible at that point. <laughs> so whatever. So I'm in the TIA at craft, right? Right. So I'm watching, you know, up and down, watching my retirement savings go out the window. Um, and then increasingly what's happened is the PCERS and the guaranteed, uh, the guaranteed income of that pension is going away. They're, they're retiring that and pushing everybody into 401ks. And that has been a, true across the country, right? When you had a high union density, the unions could make those demands that had an impact even on non-union employees, because it was saying to employers that basically, look, if you want to hire somebody, you want to hire a good worker, then you're going to need to give them a pension. They're going to expect a pension. And if you're not going to give them a pension, they're going to look elsewhere, right? Because unions set the bar that way, but with the basically having of union density, You've decreased the amount of worker power and you have you increased the power of Wall Street um, to this and the, the health insurance companies and so on. Right now, in other countries, of course, what they do is they have a national pension system that's not based on your employer. Right. That your employer doesn't get to tell you where to get, where the money's going to go or that they're, they're going to play. You know, they're going to go and uh, gamble your money away and hopefully that you'll get some of the, the rewards. No. What they do is they kind of put it in something that has a relatively secure earnings potential that will then pay back and people will get that pension. Because as a society, they believe it's important to take care of folks who put, you know, work their life for the benefit of, yes, for themselves and their families, but also from society. We do pensions in the same way that we do healthcare, right? We basically say, you know, we're going to basically leave it up to these private for-profit companies to basically tell you what your health plan is going to be. And you're going to have to kind of, you know, do the dog and pony show. You're going to have to kind of do all these special things if you want to get a low, a low rate. And even then, we're going to slowly eat away at the amount that we're going to cover. And we're going to question every medical decision that you're going to make. And we're going to continue to cut your benefits and make you pay more. And it's dependent on the employer. Right? as opposed to Medicare for all, right? Where you as a worker are no longer dependent upon your employer for medical insurance. So your employer no longer has, gets to hold that over your head. Your employer doesn't need to hold a pension or hold your medical insurance over your head. No, because that's something you get as part of society, not because you are a worker for, for a capitalist corporation. No. So to see this, to know that, first of all, the average, the median balance of a 401k is $17,700 for 
before this market. So it's now $14,200. That will make you through a year of retirement. That will make you through a year. That's basically saying, guess what? As soon as you stop working, you are going to be plunged into poverty because there is no net. It's sickening to me. And why is it that workers only have kind of uh, who have a 401k only have seven or fourteen thousand two hundred dollars in there? Well, because their wages are crappy. And very often the case, they're not getting employer matching. So it's just them trying to like scram some dollars into their own personal savings account. Because that's what the libertarians have always wanted, right? So that, I just saw that and said, you know, these things are all connected, right? <laughs> what's happening at the kind of the 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 Republican Party and the and what's happening with the kind of the the ineffectiveness of the Democratic Party as as it's been in terms of organizing politically, what's going on with this kind of like you know wet rag unionism that's just kind of saying, well, we just kind of we don't want to kind of you know really go too fast or too far or push too hard. We don't want to upset anybody. We want to set a kind of modest goal that we think that we can achieve so that we can tick a box that says we achieved it, even if it means decline. So you can put a PR show that says, we achieved our goal. For what ends? I mean, if we're not kind of like setting the bar high, what the hell are we doing? You know what I'm saying? So anyways, there's that. Uh, the last bit I want to just kind of like touch on today is uh, I mentioned this last week when I did my kind of rambly, hey, I'm back kind of, uh, kind, of <laughs> kind of thing on Wednesday. It was earlier this week. Uh, you know, they had this gun deal, right? You know, they said, okay, yeah, we got this bipartisan gun deal. We're going to get together. We're going to, you know, we're going to do what's achievable. And Christopher Murphy, as he always does, I'm working with my friend John Cornyn down there in Texas, and we're going to get this done because we're going a bipartisan way. We need to do this for the American people, blah, 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 blah. Everything you say. And I said at that point, said, look, I'm not putting my eggs in that basket. Uh-uh. Played this game way too many times. And I mentioned about McConnell coming out. So, yeah, if it comes out in a framework, it comes out and it's agreed upon with, with based upon the framework that it says and the text says what the framework does. Yes, and I could get behind it. All that was was him saying, like, okay, I'm just setting the table. The way that we get rid of this legislation is that you change something in the text that doesn't that doesn't match his version of what the framework is, and so then that, the Republicans can walk away from it. That's what's going to happen. If that doesn't happen, I will legitimately be floored. What they have just told us is their framework is not going to be what ends up in that bill. I'm so willing to be wrong on this. <laughs> okay. But that's what it looks like. Cornyn just basically said, ah, you know, they can't agree. They don't want to pull it. They don't want to kind of agree on this stuff. And they want either it's everything or nothing. Right. And what he's basically saying is everything that we want, that I want, or nothing. And I'm not budging. And if they don't want to give it to me, well, then I'm walking away. And that was his big move. I'm going out on vacation. I'm leaving these talks. I'm walking away from this stuff. And that throws the whole thing in doubt. And what's going to happen is Christopher Murphy and these Democrats that are on the committee are going to come up like begging to John Cornyn. Oh, John, John, please don't walk away. Please don't walk away. We need this. We need this. We need this. 
And they're going to try to use begging once again, begging for the good Republican, looking for the unicorn so that they can check their PR box and said, we did something, even if that something is next to nothing. And they'll call it a stepping stone. They'll call it a first step. They'll call it. But we know first steps require a second one, right? And require momentum in a direction. You have to exercise force, exert force in a particular direction to get to that second step. Otherwise, you take a first step and you stay there. Or you decide, why am I leading forward? Let me just stand back up to where I was before, right? I mean, come on. This, you know, this is where this, you know, this, we need the strong, we need bipartisanship. We need the strong Republican Party is such freaking nonsense. I mean, this is like, this is, you know, there's been some people talking about how the progressives should just, you know, progressives in the House should just walk away from this. Because even if they pass something, which is, you know, debatable at this point. They have to get with the House because the House passed a different bill, which is much more, which is much stronger, right? It's got a lot more meat to it. It isn't perfect, right? But it's it's got some substance to it, and it's going to meet, and they're going to have to meet in, in kind of like your committee between the Senate and the and the House, and they're going to have to kind of come to some sort of compromise. And if you think that there's going to be a compromise that is going to be beneficial for those folks who are pushing for gun reform, forget it. It can only move to the right. Further, So the more the Democrats cave in the Senate on this so-called bipartisan bill, the worse the end product is going to be. And so there's been some people already saying, look, if you're you're kind of a, a champion of gun reform, you want to kind of eliminate assault weapons, you want to kind of make sure that our kids are safe in their schools. Well, then you need to walk that you cannot you cannot support a minimalist bill that you should walk away from it, too. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Anyways, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit about what's happening here in Pennsylvania, a little what's happening in the uh, the you know the world of space. Uh, my little kind of back uh, back pocket, and uh, um, the announcement of the the launch of my first ever D and D campaign um, will be tomorrow, which I'm really excited about. Um, but more on all that just after a quick break. But anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, Want to kind of thank you all for joining in today. And uh, thank you all for your kind of continued patience as I try to adjust to the summer schedule, which is um, is causing me increased uh, increasing issues of like how I actually have a schedule at all this summer. But, um, but we shall get there. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. We'll be back right after this quick break. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1903. Mary Harris, better known as Mother Jones, held a rally in Philadelphia. The famous Irish-American labor leader had come to Pennsylvania to support a strike of textile workers. As many as 100,000 workers were out on strike. 16,000 of them were children. In her autobiography, Mother Jones recalled how the children came to the union headquarters. Many of them had suffered some sort of injury in the mills. She called the rally to bring public attention 
attention to the conditions of child labor. She had tried to get the local newspapers to report on the injuries, but the newspapers balked because the mill owners held stock in the papers. In her autobiography, Mother Jones described the rally, writing, A great crowd gathered in the public square in front of City Hall. I put the little boys with their fingers off and hands crushed and maimed on a platform. I held up their mutilated hands and showed them to the crowd and made the statement that Philadelphia's mansions were built on the broken bones, the quivering hearts, and the drooping heads of these children. That their little lives went out to make the wealth for others. The newspapers picked up the quote about the mansions and reported it in their papers. Mother Jones was pleased that she had helped to get the conversation about child labor started, but she knew it would quickly fade away if she did not keep public attention on the brutal conditions children faced every day. So she planned what has become known as the March of the Mill Children from Philadelphia to President Theodore Roosevelt's home in Oyster Bay, New York. Through her efforts, Mother Jones helped to bring national attention to the plight of child labor. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Hey everybody, everybody, welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken, here once again. I want to remind you, you can help support this show by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today and become a patron for those five bucks a month. If you're watching on YouTube right now, uh, make sure you like the show, like the stream. Uh, make sure you hit that little notification bell so that you know every time that we go live. And make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Uh, if you're listening to us on a podcast, you know, make sure you give us that five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, leave a comment that helps other people find the show. Um, so thank you so much. Um, so the comment, uh, uh, while I was on a quick break, um, my daughter just said, uh, I thought you said this was going to be short. Uh, so that reminds me <laughs> of my increasing obligations right, uh, for the summer. Um, and, I, and I thought I was going to be shorter today, but apparently, you know, here we are. Uh, anyways, uh, just some quick stuff happening here in Pennsylvania. So if you haven't seen already, so, you know, but there's been this back and forth. Um, in, uh, in the state politics that, uh, governor Wolf has been basically, uh, he's got this thing called the PA opportunity program. And earlier this month, uh, Wolf visited, um, kind of out kind of Western Pennsylvania. And he basically says, look, he wants to pass legislation, um, to send, uh, $2,000 checks to all Pennsylvanians. And, um, that is being held up by, uh, by Republicans. So this is from uh, WTAE.com. Uh, let me just get out of Pittsburgh. So let me just, uh, I'll read you a little bit about what's happening here. It's a little short piece. So it's Pitch, Pittsburgh's Action News 4 first reported a PA opportunity program earlier this month when Wolf visited Westview to speak about the plan. Acting Human Services Secretary Meg Sneed said Thursday that the payments would be a big help as prices for everything from gas to grocery stores continue to rise. Quote, the opportunity grants are an investment in caring for people, our foremost responsibility and duty as government, Sneed said. The administration would use federal funding from the American Rescue Plan to send payments to residents across the state. Households with an income of $80,000 or less would be eligible. According to Wolf's office, Democratic leaders in the state Senate and House have introduced legislation to make the plan a reality, but the Republican-led General Assembly has been slow to act if they're going to act at all. They seem to indicate they don't want to. So let's be clear. This is money that has just been sitting there, 
right, that the 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 PAGOP Republicans, Pennsylvania Republicans have been refusing to invest, refusing to kind of provide aid for people as a, um, the aftermath of the pandemic um, because they've all decided that the pandemic's over instead of kind of actually using this money to help people. They've just been sitting on it. Right. And it's a ton of cash. And so Governor Wolf says, look, this is supposed to be designed for people. Right. To help out people. So we're basically saying if you if you are making eighty thousand dollars or less. Right. If your family's make eighty thousand dollars or less, we're going to send you a two thousand dollar check. Right. That is a clear recognition that the people who are harmed the most from the pandemic continue to feel the effects of it are those folks um, kind of in the middle class. Right. And um, the ones who are kind of kind of in the working class and working poor. That's your that's who's impacted the greatest. The people like kind of like kind of above that. Right. The people doing it have made out OK. Right. Not perfectly. Hasn't been kind of hunky dory. Hasn't been glorious. Yes, there's all sorts of issues. But in terms of like the financial impact, that two thousand dollars going to, to families up with eighty thousand dollars or less is absolutely critical. And yet. And yet. They will not plumb. So we'll see what happens with that. Keep an eye on that. State Senator Steve uh, Santisiero uh, becomes the new chair of the Bucks County Democrats. Um, As I was reading it towards the top of the show, uh, Kirsten kind of uh, jumped in the chat and basically said, yes, people are excited about this. Um, One thing I didn't get to some of her comments here. I thought I'd bring them back now. Once she says, says, I guess I'm excited because I helped organize what the Newtown Dems did last weekend. It will be doing this weekend. And the volunteers were so enthusiastic. We got to knocking a lot of doors. And what they did is they went out and they were kind of uh, canvassing on uh, gun violence prevention. Future canvases are going to go on uh, reproductive freedom. Right. So that was kind of exciting, as she says. And the voter with whom uh, they spoke. Right. We're very supportive about changing gun laws and it made the connection between electing more Dems and seeing the changes folks want. Um, so that's absolutely kind of critical. Right. I mean, so she's saying having those conversations. Right. Opens up the possibility of kind of connecting what people's preferences are, what people would like to see and the candidates who they need to elect. Right. And that's the work that Dem- Democrats have not been doing in Bucks County for a long, long time. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I was I was chatting with somebody um, over the past couple of days and we we're talking a little bit. About, uh, they were asking me about some uh, Bucks County politics and kind of what was happening here and all this stuff. And one of the things I had to, had to say was like, look, one of the problems here is, it's you know, yes, it, part of it has been kind of a, a fairly anemic uh, Bucks County uh, Democratic Party leadership. Um, one that has been more interested in kind of, you know, again, hobnobbing with the kind of rich Republicans, as we saw uh, kind of earlier this year, uh, than it is to actually um, kind of uh, put together an organizing plan and then actually do the organizing. Um, so that's one one tier of it. But part of the, part of the reason for that, too, as well, is that you've had organizations like PSEA, right, the, um, the, the kind of major teachers union in our area. You've had PSEA. You've had um, the uh, the Sierra Club. You've had the. Um, so, uh, you know, the firefighters and all the, uh, you have these different kinds of groups that have basically jumped in and they've been endorsing people like like Brian Fitzpatrick. Right. And again, their reasoning there, this goes back to exactly what we were talking about at the top of the show. Their reasoning there has been, OK, we're just we're going to try to kind of find like, you know, the unicorn Republican that will kind of help us out. That won't be too bad for us. Right. That will be through their kind of quote, pro pro education or pro environment. Right. Uh, in the kind of small sense. Right. The small education, small environment. Right. <laughs> you know, um, and not so good on some of the larger questions, but but whatever. You know, so they they just they're just playing it safe. 
right? And meanwhile, when we see an explosion of, you know, kind of uh, threats and uh, kind of craziness in the school boards because the uh, the extreme right wing is well organized and they're kind of have a, a long term plan to kind of eliminate teachers unions, um, to destroy our education and to send us back into like some sort of version of a white 1950s. Um, well, then these organizations are unprepared for that. So they put their money, So, but they put their money in terms of like the moderate Republican and Brian Fitzpatrick, at least the brand. And yes, you know, I, I would encourage folks to go back and listen to uh, our discussion, my, my uh, discussions with Kirsten Zolfo, Zolfo on, the, on this show. Uh, we had her on a couple of weeks ago. We had her back on a while back where she's been uh, kind of, you know, unmasking the kind of moderate Republican of Brian Fitzpatrick because um, he's not at all. Um, having said that, when organizations like PSEA, organizations like uh, the Sierra Club, um, these are kind of quote unquote progressive organizations or should be kind of more uh, kind of democratic leading organizations or at least working people organizations, uh, when they start endorsing Republicans um, and then especially when they put money behind that. Um, what it does is it scares all the rest of the money in the organizations away. So all the get out the vote people who actually have working relationships with those organizations, they leave. They don't they don't kind of invest in Bucks County because they don't want to come in conflict with um, these other organizations, for example. Right. This is just kind of the nuts and bolts of politics that most people don't see. Right. Um, so it has a downward pressure on local races. Because if you what you what you kind of are only focused on the kind of, uh, of of doing the least damage you possibly can by hoping to praying that the quote unquote moderate Republican um, is going to kind of like you know do you a favor do you a solid if you beg hard enough at his table um, well, there's that road or there's the one that's kind of investing and organizing which we're kind of seeing here so um, uh, Kirsten has said and I know I've heard this from a number of people have said that this is where they're seeing kind of moving and one of the things I have to say like with you know, I was really impressed. This is why I, I'm I'm really impressed with Gwen Stoltz's campaign. Like, not only do we have an opportunity to um, flip this seat in the 143rd, right, for a bunch of reasons. One part of that has to do with redistricting and the way that redistricting makes it much more possible. But also it has to do with, you know, how great a candidate Gwen Stoltz is. Um, and, you know, one of the first things that she did, you know, before the, all the campaigning was like full on and all this stuff, she met with parents groups throughout Bucks County. Um, that had been involved or, you know, local Democratic clubs or parents groups that were involved in this uh, uh, the, uh, school board kind of nonsense that were already getting together and organizing. And she wanted to meet with folks. Right. And she was open. I was in one of these meetings and got to ask her some questions. She was completely like forthcoming. She was like interested. She was engaged. She was she had great things to say. Um, she's not a kind of like a, a, like I'm going to people please everybody. She's got a kind of a, a solid core of commitment to values, like, for example, right, um, a commitment to kind of reproductive rights. Right. Um, making sure that we're kind of we're keeping abortion safe and legal, making sure that um, that women are not turned into second you know, second class citizens. Right. That's first and foremost. She's not afraid to say it. Right. We, we need candidates like that. Right. Not with, well, not with, well, we got to say. So she's that kind of candidate. She's got a great background. She's got um, a real chance to win. Right. So she has had her people out. Like I said, they showed up at my door. Um, and she seems to be kind of getting behind that same kind of organizing model, which is really fantastic. Ashley Ahas, as I've said on this show multiple times, is like I was I said at the beginning, I said was I was cautiously optimistic. I love her launch video. I thought it was exactly the kind hit the kind of tone that I think we need at this particular moment. It was kind of aggressive. She's a fighter, that kind of thing. Um, but we've seen it before. 
And we've seen what happens when the Democratic consultant class gets involved and gets their teeth into things. And it basically turns a potentially, you know, decent candidate into just like a, a throwaway candidate. Here, like I've said, the way I've put it in the past is like, you know, uh, we've gotten in Ashley Ahas, we've got a good candidate a solid candidate, a really good candidate, um, despite everything those, that consultant class would do <laughs> to try to wreck that, right? So she just happens to be one of these people that is just like, she's strong, she's a fighter, she's an organizer, she's been out there working, she's been showing up for people and so on. This is a good time to kind of have someone like Steve Santisiero, um basically stepping in um, to lead the Bucks County Democrats because I think he's, from what, I'm on, from what I understand, um, he's has that mindset. Of wanting to step in and wanting to make sure that um, that we're going to be able to win in Bucks County and not just kind of throw a bunch of money at TV ads. So that's a good thing. Good thing. Um, meanwhile, for those folks who are concerned about what's going to happen to their kids' education, well, um, as uh, Stephen Caruso reported out this week, uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, Doug Mastriano was uh, was going to introduce a bill into the. I think it was the government committee. Yeah, the state government, the, the Senate state government committee um, that would, quote, um, make make it make it a make it a law that the liberty of a parent to direct the upbringing, education and care and welfare of their child is a fundamental right. In other words, right, all these kind of like, you know, like parents rights groups that have been um, monopolizing school board meetings, saying that they don't want their kid reading things that are teaching them anti-racism, for example, that they want their kids to stay uh, kind of white and proud, that kind of thing. Right. Those ones that are so worried that there's that their kids might be exposed to a perspective that is not of theirs um, and try to ban books. Um, basically, this bill from Doug Mastriano would basically say, uh they get first dibs. Those parents get, get to dictate what happens in the classroom as opposed to the, uh, as opposed to the professionals who know education. That's the kind of deal. Uh, this is a Senate Bill 996. Um, it's a very short bill. Um, and the text of the bill, you can check it out. Um, and I'll have it in the, in the show notes for today. But the um, they're calling it the parents. It says it's called for. It's called Establishing a Parents' Bill of Rights. Um Let's see. Let me just give you a sense. Here's the memo. It says his legislation will make it clear to statute that the Commonwealth or any of its political subdivisions may not infringe on the fundamental rights of of a parent to direct the upbringing, education, health care and mental health of his or her minor child without demonstrating that such action is reasonable and necessary to achieve compelling state interests narrowly tailored and not otherwise served by a less restrictive means. The legislation will also codify a parent's right to access and review all school records related to their child, a right to review all instructional materials used throughout the school year, and the right to opt opt out their child from certain curriculum that the parent finds to be objectionable or harmful. Establishing a parental bill of rights will ensure that the rights of parents in our commonwealth are not swept aside by overbearing bureaucracy. Right. So if your kid is being taught, um, you know, kind of evolution in science class and you are a creationist, well, you can opt your kid out of that, you know, um, and, you know, good luck on the AP exams. Good luck on your SATs. But um, there you have it. So now, again, will this make its way out of the floor? I mean, look, I wouldn't I, it wouldn't surprise me entirely if he made it. Probably not, though. This is a messaging bill. This is what Doug Mastriano is basically telling the rest of us and telling his base who he needs to he needs to keep on on feeding that red meat, right? Um, he needs to make sure that their base is seeing that this is who he is. 
Yeah, Emily just uh, mentioned too as well in our chat today that the uh, GOP just introduced their own versions that don't don't say gay bill. Thank you for putting that. I actually had that tagged. I'm not sure why I didn't make that into my my notes today. Um, these are this is this is the gearing up for what this fall's election, the, the midterm elections are going to be about here in Pennsylvania. Um, we are going to see Florida too. There's an interesting thing, you know. I, I when I was when I was really involved in my in my um, in the leadership of my local union and my statewide union, one of the things that I would do is that I would you know any time somebody new is being hired, um, whether it's at like a chancellor or it's a, a university president or you know somebody like that by hired by the administration, I you know do background research. Right. I'd want to find out, well, who is this person? What do the people have to say about it? Um, so when so, for example, Frank Brogan, he was a previous um, uh, chancellor of the states of higher education. I looked into his background. Of course, he was one of these you know key people that worked with um, uh, Jeb Bush. Right. And establishing these kind of like uh, uh, pro charter laws and privatization of public education, anti public education stuff and all this stuff down down in Florida. Um, he was the president of, uh, um, I, I can't remember which Florida university it was right now. But so then I just called down there. I called, so, oh, is it, is it a unionized faculty? Oh, look, it's a unionized faculty. Let me call the union. Let me find out. Let me find out some of the background and do some research. And so you, you get prepared, right? I mean, especially in a situation where you don't have the opportunity to actually, you're not making the choice. You're not influencing the choice they're going to choose anyways. You want at least to know what you're up against, right? So you do the background research. And the crazy thing was, up until this recent chancellor, there was like this pipeline from Florida to Pennsylvania, right? Judy Hample, that was our first chancellor of the States of Higher Education that start, turned from this kind of like, we grow our chancellors inside Pennsylvania to we're going to look elsewhere. And she was that first one that came in to start going anti-union um, in the State System of Higher Education. She was from Florida, right? <clears throat> then you had Kavanaugh, right? I think he, I don't know if he had the Florida connection exactly, but he had Brogan from Florida. And then you had these kind of legislators who would keep on going down and talking to these, um, getting, you know, uh, doing consulting with the people in Florida. And so it's like this Florida, Pennsylvania pipeline in this weird way. Well, here it is again, right? They don't say gay bill, right? We're seeing that again, using Florida as the model for what these uh, Pennsylvania Republicans would like to see in the state of Pennsylvania. There we have it. Um, so we should see. Also this week, of course, we saw that the uh, Pennsylvania legislature punted on gun reform, uh, which Governor Wolf called absolutely shameful. Right. The Democrats were kind of still maneuvering to try to kind of see if they could find a way of getting the uh, getting a vote on this stuff. Um, but the Pennsylvania uh, GOP are also saying no. Right. Um, and finally, I just wanted to talk about this. Um, you know, so in. This is Bill Schachter again. You've heard me talk about him before. He's an education reporter for the uh, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He's just a fabulous reporter. Right? I love, I mean, he's just, I read I read his stuff as much as I possibly can. So he reported on this that there's going to be a, that says the Pennsylvania, this, the, the, this is the headline, Pennsylvania state system considers big change to how it splits up millions of dollars, the chancellor said. So they're looking for different ways of allocating hundreds of millions of dollars in state appropriations. And, you know, you know, Chancellor Greenside said, this is about student success and we're going to support fuller first generation, low income. Okay. Okay. He says all this stuff, but what does it actually mean? Right. Student success is like, what do you actually mean by my student success? Right. And what are the consequences? What are you, what are you going to do in order to achieve that? You know, there's all sorts of these kind of questions. So they're going to be, 
so this is reporting that came out on Tuesday. So the Board of Governors just met, I guess, now. We'll see what it goes in. They met a special session on Wednesday morning in Harrisburg to consider what leaders, including Chancellor Greenstein, hope will help reverse enrollment declines from households with incomes of $70,000 or less, part of a demographic for whom the state system was founded in um, 1983 to serve, which is good. Right. It says, under the proposed allocation formula, up to 25% will be allocated based on core expenses to operate a university, taking into account factors including higher costs for smaller universities to cover expenses and those that must recruit students and operate in portions of the state with declining population. The other 75% will consider base full-time enrollment over two years and emphasize groups that include underrepresented minorities and students from households with incomes small enough to qualify for a need-based federal Pell Grant. Consideration will also be given to student progress toward a degree and program level. So it does seem to be the shift in terms of percentage of money and what they want to target. So that I think I get that. But then it says the formula won't involve specific set targets, but rather rely on university leaders to set legitimate goals based upon their resources, student demographics, and markets in which they operate. So it's like, what exactly that means? So what, what the pattern with this guy, with Chancellor Greenstein, seems to be, right? What he does is he does this thing. It's very interesting, is that, you know, he makes these moves that are kind of on the surface. They seem kind of, you know, pretty good. Like, I... If this is what they're saying, about 75% are really going to be targeting towards make sure we're serving the population of students that uh, the state system was designed to serve, right? Kind of, you know, working class Pennsylvanians, like writ large, those folks with kind of like make sure there's open access to people for everyone in the in the uh, um, school. And now adding into that, we're really looking, targeting on underserved populations you want to say black and latino populations people of color right? all this kind of you want to make sure all that that's all great that's all good and we need to be doing that right that's i mean i no disagreement but then he does this move right instead of saying okay we're going to set out this policy agenda this is how we're going to do this then he says no we're going to leave it up to individual universities to do this right so he appeals to the second thing, which is about this flexibility, this individual thing. We don't want one size fits all. We don't want the big government stuff. We're going to have the, you know, the innovation that's happening on all the different campuses, right? So essentially kind of doing a little competitive stuff between the campuses. But then there's this third move, right, which is which we saw in terms of the, the, the deep austerity cuts that he's been pushing. Then there's a behind-the-scenes mandate that goes to each university president. So when it comes to this faculty ratio, faculty student ratio, for example, right, that was not part of an overt plan, but he forced a ratio on each individual university, which basically left university presidents in a position to say, either we, we eliminate some programs or we, or we kind of eliminate faculty. So you see this mass austerity, which is basically a continuation of things that have been happening for, for, you know, a decade or more, more than a decade now. But it's done in a way that it's kind of like hides the ball, if you know what I mean. So we shall see, right, where this goes. Um, there's real good reasons. So, you know, so like, for example, here, check this out. So across the system, one in almost one in five who enroll in uh, enroll in the states of higher education are from underrepresented groups. Right. And uh, which count in the state system defines that as American Indian, Alaska Native, Black or African-American, Hispanic or from those or two or more races, according to this data list. Right. So. There's real compelling interest, especially, to you know, we've got one in five um, people who already enroll, right, that 
yes, you need to make sure that they have success and they're showing that there's a disparity in graduation rates and things like this. So I'm all behind that kind of thing, right? But what does it actually mean? Now, Ken Mash, who's, again, the incoming president of the States or of Association of Pennsylvania State Colleges and University Faculties, or ABSCUF, he said, right, he's not yet sure what to make of the plan. He wants to find out more Wednesday about what it would mean for individual universities that operate in varied parts of the state. He wondered about shifts in enrollment and state funding. You know, quote, the most important thing to see is what the impact is on individual universities. Where would they be with it and where would they be if things remain the same, he asked. Who are the winners and the losers? Which is precisely the question that you want to know. So we shall see because, you know, we've, we've seen this kind of like we're going to hide the ball and then there's going to be these, these, these really detrimental consequences, right? We're going to kind of say these things that we're working with everybody, coming up with a plan and bringing in all the stakeholders, but really we're going to have this other plan that we're going to go in and consolidate universities, Right. So we're going to use all the smoke screens and all this kind of dog and pony show, but really we've already kind of come up with what we're going to, or he's already come up with where he's going to go. So this is going to be interesting um, to see what happens. And this is also going to be very interesting to see how this plays into upcoming contract negotiations, right? Because that's, I think, part of the game here too as well. Anyways, uh, I'm just going to cut right to the today's last call. So uh, SpaceX, I mentioned this already, uh, SpaceX employees are finally pushing back against Elon Musk, especially as his behavior becomes more erratic and he starts kind of embracing more of the kind of right wing and the kind of the extremism that's out there. They're basically uh, sending it. They sent a letter. They drafted a letter and they're encouraging lots of people to uh, sign on. Um, the letter's got a lot of anonymous signers and they're not sure exactly who went into signing, but a lot of people are signing on and just going to the, basically the CEO of the company, basically saying, listen, we're increasingly concerned with what Musk is doing is actually it's detrimental for SpaceX. It's ruining our, our reputation and it's making our work more difficult. Um, and which is kind of seeing this kind of pushback for Facebook employees. I, or, I'm sorry for uh, uh, SpaceX employees is really good. I should I, I was you know I, I I I was doing laundry this morning and I was I took out my uh, the shirt. I almost wore that one instead today. It says you know the unionized Mars uh, shirt, uh, which I, I love that shirt, but which would have been fitting for this. But so that comes out. They get some publicity. Kind of a day or two later, uh, Musk goes ahead and kind of identifies five people who are in part he thinks responsible for writing them and fired them. So uh, there you go. Masks off Musk. Like if you needed any more to kind of say why you should not be a fanboy of Elon Musk, this is why. <laughs> OK, you could love SpaceX. I mean, look, I'm like I said, I'm a space geek here. But come on, this is, this is one of the worst labor practices in the industry. Um, and then NASA's Perseverance uh, Mars rover um, got a nice picture of some trash on Mars. Yep, they think it was a piece of either like a piece of the parachute or one of these kind of uh, the the coverings of the kind of heat shield or something was wedged in a rock someplace. So there you go. Perseverance, you know, in a planet, right? We have not even been there that long, right? There's not even that many people who have visited. But even there, random rover off in the middle of kind of on a place that's never been explored before comes across trash on the planet. So humans have been here. That is officially our stance. We can trash up every place that we have it. So final thing I'll mention today for, um, oh yeah, Emily also mentioned too as well, I should say this, that uh, PA, uh, Mastriano wants PA to be a gun rights sanctuary state, which is great. Um, you're going to get rid of all the immigrants, but you're going to make sure that um, every gun has a safe home. Whatever. Uh, last thing I want to mention today as part of today's last call and kind of fun for the week is that um, I am uh, starting, uh, we're doing a session zero tomorrow. Um, with my kids and with her friends and my cousin or my niece, their cousin. And we're going to do, uh, we're starting the 
D and D. It's in the starter set. It's called the Lost Last uh, Lost Mine of uh, Fandalin or Fandalin. Uh, Lost Mine of Fandalin, and then um, it's session zero, like a session zero in Dungeons and Dragons. Basically, you get everybody together, if you know, kind of talk about your characters, a little bit about the setting, the scene, what kind of game you want to have, maybe have a little kind of uh, kind of uh, preliminary role play, um, just so that you get everyone's kind of set for the for the campaign to get kind of off and running and so on. So I'm really excited about this. Um, my plan had initially been. Um, and I hope to be able to do some of this stuff if I can work out my schedule, but I wanted to do this little, just for fun, uh, kind of addition to our Patreon site, which was called D and D and D like Dungeons and Dragons and dad, um, as just kind of like an ongoing, you know, kind of updates about what's happening in the campaign and what my experience like is just DMing for the first time, especially being kind of as old as I am and, um, things that I'm encountering, uh, little tips and tricks I'm coming across. Um, reach out for help for people about how you, would you approach certain things. Um, just as like, you know, a short little addition to our Patreon site to kind of broaden things out a little bit and to kind of tap into some of that, um, uh, that joy <laughs> right there. Um, I, I, what got me thinking about this? Uh, yeah, I think so too, Amy. I, and, and I was just about to mention you, Amy. So um, Amy said, ooh, sounds like fun. Uh, part of what got me thinking about that is wanting to have spaces, um, in my life and our lives as kind of like a people, right. Community and things like this, where are about say joy and fun. And, you know, Amy actually got me thinking about some of this stuff when we were talking about, um, kind of doing this book chat kind of thing with the, um, um, the wheel of time, right. But the first book of the wheel of time as, you know, as a way of kind of bringing some, you know, say, you know, cultural aspects and things like this, where we're not so focused on the doom and gloom all the time, because it seems like that's what politics is right now. Um, in part, at least I should say in part, there's a lot of hope out there too, as well, but there's, there's a lot of stuff that we're challenged with, let's say, but for having these moments of kind of say joy and community um, that we can include there too, as well. So I thought that might be kind of a cool uh, thing to do. So, Hopefully I'll be able to do that. The, you know, the other thing that I've been wanting to do for a long time is, you know, the space news stuff that uh, that used to be much more regular part of the um, the Friday politics roundup when Sean and I were doing the show. Um, uh, I used to spend more time on doing that in part because he hated it so much and it was just kind of fun to poke at him too as well. Um, but uh, you know, to do this thing called called space left and. Um, that would just be focusing on some of these things. But, you know, again, it's, you know, I'm, I'm hitting my own limits once again of, um, of what I wish I could do and have time to do. Um, it seems like even when I tamp down my expectations or tamp down what I think, uh, what I think I can do, I always seem to still overshoot a little bit in terms of what the reality of my life is, is in real terms. So, um, so fingers crossed, but the, the D and D one, I think I can do. And cause it, because it can be a little bit more informal and I can kind of talk through some things. Um, uh, the reason, the re- especially the reason why I wanted to do this now would be because, you know, this is the Lost Mine of Phandalin is, um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a preset game so that you have, you know, the story and the characters and that kind of stuff. And, you know, the overall adventure is all kind of written out already. Um, you know, still, I mean, depending on what characters do, it's like all sorts of different options and all this other kinds of stuff. I mean, um, but the, the world itself is set, you know, the world and kind of like the challenges and, and the, um, uh, the intrigue and the adventure is kind of there. Um, I'm also working on, I have been for the past kind of almost year now, have been working on my own world. 
and um, uh, that and from my own adventure, um, I've got a map. I've got um, the beginnings of the adventure already started. I got some of the. What's that? Lore. I have lore, right? I have. I, I wait till you hear the lore of my own. That's my daughter. She, she she'll be playing tomorrow too as well. Um, she's probably the most enthusiastic. Um, I think I don't. She and I compete for like the most enthusiastic um, for this thing. Um, but the uh, yeah, and so in my in my world, there's uh, you know I've already started to set some of the main cities and some of the settings and what some of the um, the adventure hooks are going to be for it. Um, but I wanted before I did that, I wanted to, to play at least to DM once, at least as a um, uh, at a game that was set already. Because look, Dungeons and Dragons has a lot of has a lot of rules. Right. There's a lot of uh, things to kind of keep your eye on and get used to. And that makes me anxious, especially because I feel like, you know, I've always been kind of a rule based thing, but I don't feel like I should have a really good handle on the rules. So I'll be reaching out to other people who as well say, help, how do you do this? Um, right. Like, for example, there's this thing thing called like a like a spell, uh, a, like a, it was a spell saving throw. So basically what it means, like, so say if I'm playing in, in my, if I'm playing like a, like a wizard, right. Or I'm playing a, you know, some kind of magic user and I cast a particular spell, um, on somebody and they have, um, the, in the rules, it says, um, they can make say like a, I don't know, constitution saving throw. So based upon what these numbers are that they have, um, and they could roll a dice to roll a constitution saving throw. So they roll a 20 sided die. There's that number plus whatever their, their modifier is for constitution. Right. And it's against the spell casters, like, like spell casting ability. I can't even remember what it's called. And I, for the life of me, cannot get my head around this thing because it's like you take this number and you add it with this number instead of this. And it's only one thing. You only need to do it once. Right. And then you know it. So that's what it is. But just like wrapping things in my head around like that. So that stuff makes me anxious, um, which is one of the reasons it'd be kind of cool to do this as, you know, as part of a, a like a mini little uh, kind of pod podcast. It's not podcast, but like kind of like, you know, additional content on the Patreon site, which is to kind of you know, to play around with some of this stuff because it's uh, I like to, you know, share my own discomfort, I guess. <laughs> and, and, you know, frankly, there's just the other part of it too, as well as it's like, this is like, I watch a lot of these videos to try to help me out. I just, there's great creators out there that in the D and D community that are just doing, are so helpful and kind of putting out really kind of, you know, little guides and little quick tips and this kind of stuff have been so generous with their time. And, um, and, you know, to be able to, and the one thing that I always come across is like to some, there, there's a great community of people that are have already been playing for a little bit, right? Or have been playing at least for, for you know a few times already, um, or have uh, you know done this. But there's there's always like these these aspects of the game that you know for somebody who hasn't been doing it for a long time, it's been you know years since I played D anD D. To be switching around and then doing a GM for the first time at my age is like okay, just you know grasp you know trying to grasp kind of how to do this and you know again the fear of like doing it wrong right which is you know whatever you can't really do it wrong but you you know you can have you can create a game that's like more enjoyable for people or less enjoyable depending on how well you're prepared for it so little things like that and so things i notice as someone who's doing it for the first time that i've stumbled on people just kind of like share that too as well and maybe that could be helpful for some folks um giving a little bit back to that community too as well so be kind of cool uh, so I hope to do that. Um, so we'll have I'll I'll give a a, a little update 
on the uh, for um, this will be for patrons on our Patreon site. Um, that's at patreon.com slash RC press. Um, you can become a patron for a little five bucks a month and that'll give you access to that content. I will probably release like, you know, that for the public down the road. Um, but initially, um, you know, uh, usually what I'll do is release something for uh, for patrons first and then you know, maybe I, I, I haven't really figured out the timelines. It'll see how much I, how often I can do this. Um, but at least, um, each time that I play, uh, each time I do a preparation site, then I would come back on and then I'll release the other stuff a little bit later on, um, for, um, the broad public, but it will always be on Patreon. So even when it's publicly available on Patreon, it won't be part of our regular podcast and so on. Um, um, for a bunch of reasons that I don't feel like talking about right now. So <laughs> crazy. So anyways, uh, this is going to be it for today. Um, I've gone longer than I told my daughter I would and right scout. Yeah. Yeah. So she agrees. Um, so uh, for now, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, I'm Again, I want to uh, thank all of you for uh, stick with me as I've been trying to figure out the summer schedule. I believe uh, Out to Coop Live, um, our evening show, I believe that is going to switch to Wednesday nights. Um, just Mondays, my daughter has soccer on Mondays now, um, really f- for the bulk of the rest of the summer. So it's... Mondays are just going to be hard until we get kind of a little bit closer to the fall. By probably in August, uh, we will just switch back to Mondays. Um, but for now here, and it's really been upsetting me. I'll share this with you too as well. It's been upsetting me because I have a a, a list of guests that um, I want to have on the show that are interested in coming on the show, but I haven't been able to schedule because I can't figure out a time. Right. And that's been really upsetting to me because I think these guests were are important and relevant and the kind of things that this community is, has uh, has really helped enable us to get on, um, you know, um, to bring on the show. I've had absolutely phenomenal feedback, for example, on Sarah Aniano, who was on a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, when she came on and talking about these kind of right wing conspiracy theories and how they're perpetuated social media and so on. Um, I've just got just tremendous feedback from folks, um, from people that I've, I, I don't know who they are, um, but who basically found the show because in part because of you all have been sharing it out. Uh, you all have been liking the streams um, that they are kind of like new to the podcast. They've been told me that they've been going back and kind of listening to some previous episodes, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, there's also, um, you know, and that's all you all. I mean, you all who kind of listen to the show, who support the show, who are patrons of the show, who share it out to everybody, to the, my Twitter warriors out there from, you know, Kirsten and from uh, Ada, from Starry-Eyed, from, uh, from Chuck, from Venting, from Jenny Stevens, from Melza B, Emily. I mean, yeah, I mean, we've got just a, from Amy, from, you know, I could keep on this list over and over and over again. Um, these are folks that are have just been doing an amazing, amazing job and helping get the word out. So I help uh, thank you all for everything that you've done. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for me this week, and uh, we will see you soon. Um, hopefully, we're going to see you uh, next Wednesday. Fingers crossed, um, and uh, we'll definitely be back on next Friday. Um, Amy and I are going to work out. Um, you know, Amy Connect has been on the show as a as a, as a co-host and. Uh, she and I were going back a little bit yesterday, um, and it looks like we're maybe going to work out a little bit more of a regular, um, time where she could be on like, kind of like every other week or twice a month or however we might work that out. Um, cause I love having Amy on the show. I love doing shows with Amy and, uh, I know you all have liked it too as well. So that's been fantastic. Uh, so we'll have more information about that kind of coming up next week. 
All right, everybody, um, that's going to do it for me today. Uh, thank you for your support. Thank you for your time. And have a great freaking weekend, everybody. Uh, I know that we all could use one. Uh, let's keep up the fight, keep up the organizing, support one another. Love to y'all. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Whew. Another week. See ya!